Amen. Thank you, Howard. Good morning. Um, well, that's not a bad crowd for spring break weekend. Among our crowd this morning, I have a friend from Congregation Beth Messiah, a Messianic Jewish congregation, Ron, Rabbi Ron Aronson, sitting right here. Ron, would you stand up for everybody? <laughs> He learned about our class from Joel Chernoff, and uh, I think Joel is going to be coming there in May and, and doing something there at uh, uh, their house of worship. But he brought me an information package on their Messianic Jewish congregation, and I just love this kind of stuff, okay? I, I admit to being a Bible nerd. Um, so I, I like to start reading it. The Articles of Faith. Hey, this sounds like our church over there in some ways. Um, the Bible, composed of the old... Testament, the Old Covenant, the Tanakh, and the New Covenant is the only infallible and authoritative Word of God, that God, as declared in the Shema, is one, in the deity of Jesus the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, that He is the seed of woman, as God promised in Genesis 3.15, His virgin birth was to be assigned to Israel. Uh, the only means of being saved is by grace, through faith, in the shed sacrificial blood of Jesus the Messiah. And the regeneration by the Spirit of God is absolutely essential for personal salvation. And the present ministry of the Holy Spirit, by whose indwelling the believer is enabled to live a godly life. It goes on and on and on. The resurrection. Um, the new covenant body of the Lord is composed of both Jews and Gentiles who have accepted Jesus the Messiah as the promised Redeemer. And now they are to worship together in the house of God. And the immersion of believers is commanded by the scriptures as an outward sign of an inward salvation experience, symbolizing the death of the old man and the resurrection of the new man in Messiah. Um, anyway, uh, if you uh, ever want an interesting experience, their services are on Saturday morning at 10 o'clock. And I'll keep this and we'll put it out so that people can access it and uh, find it useful. This morning is a very different uh, class in some ways. For those of you who may be new, um, this class is one called Biblical Literacy. Mark Kraber has some extra lessons, and Stacy, if you need one, hold up your hand. Uh, today's lesson's a bit different than what we've covered before. Um, uh, anybody need a lesson? Philip, did you hold your hand up? No, you're all right. You're, you're mooching. Okay. All right. Um, this is one that I've had a lot of requests about, and uh, uh, in the process of the whole class in general, what we've tried to do is say, as Christians who are called together to worship God, we have a Bible, and, and I have an NIV right here, a, a smaller one than what you're using in the class, but a New International Version of the Bible. And what do we as Christians need to know about this book to be literate? I'm not calling us to be uh, uh, deep theological scholars. This is not a, a, a seminary degree where you're going to have a, an MTH, a Master's of Theology, when we're done. Um, uh, but uh, let, let's just take the scriptures and let's at least be competent. Let's be able to handle them well. Let's be able to find what we need to find to know what the scriptures are generally about, to know how we came up with this Bible and who decided this was the Bible we ought to use. So in the process of that, we started with Genesis and we have worked our way through uh, all of, of the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh. Um, we have worked our, ourselves all the way from Genesis to, in the NIV, Malachi, which is at the end. And that brings us now to the book of Matthew, except for one issue. 
somewhere between Malachi and Matthew, in between the Testaments, or as it's called, intertestamental period, there are some things that happened. And there were some books that were written. And those books have found themselves into some Bibles, but not into other Bibles. And so if you've got the NIV study Bible we're using in this class, the books are not in there. But if you might have uh, Regina, where's Regina? She sits over there. Regina brought her Catholic, hold your, hold your Bible up. She brought her Catholic Bible from high school up in Massachusetts. It's uh, been blessed and is, uh, uh, you know, identified. And uh, it's interesting to see when she graduated from high school. Um, <laughs> oh, that was eighth grade. Okay, okay. Eighth grade. Eighth grade. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I was in eighth grade back then, too. Um, uh, anyway, as we age, it's fun to look back. How many of you came out of a Catholic background or maybe still Catholic today? Okay, I'd say that's at least 30 to 40 percent. Um, that's a, a large number. Um, I, I brought uh, uh, my Catholic Bible, the Jerusalem Bible. Actually, this one belongs to my son because mine's uh, in, in storage, if that's not too terrible to say. Yeah, I store my Bibles. Um, so, but my son has one, and so I borrowed his for today, and I brought it. Uh, I, I talk about a Catholic Bible because the Apocrypha is found more in the Catholic Bible and less in uh, uh, what we would consider a Bible that we would normally buy for our use. Though you can buy a Catholic Bible at uh, Grapevine, for example, and evangelical bookstores. Um, now, having said all of that, uh, today is, I don't want this to be like some dry academic class. I, I, I work real hard to make sure that these classes don't put too many of you to sleep. And uh, um, if you fall asleep today, then Right now, you're forgiven. Okay? I'm doing the best I can. All right? And just hang on with me. And some people are extremely interested in this subject, and for them, we dedicate last week or this week and next week. And it's going to take two weeks to really cover the Apocrypha. Today, I want to talk about just some background information of is it part of the Bible or is it not, and what is it anyway? And then next week, we're going to talk about what are the key elements of the Apocrypha, uh, what are the books about, and then, how is the Apocrypha used in the New Testament? Because to some degree, it illuminates some of the writings of Paul, some of the writings in Hebrews, some of the writings in James, and uh, some of the sayings of Jesus. And so we'll have a chance to see how we can properly use the Apocrypha as we go to next week's lesson. We start out this week asking the question, what is the Apocrypha? What is it? Well, uh, there's an easy answer. The easy answer to the Apocrypha is 14 or 15 books, depending upon how you number them, that some, uh, well, books that are in some Old Testaments, but not in others. If you had a Catholic Bible, and if you've got one at home, bring it next week, because it'll be helpful. Um, it's not required, and we're not giving these out like we did the NIV study Bibles, so... You've got to go get your own if you don't have one. But if you look, for example, at the index to the Catholic Bible. Um, um, let me get this stuff right here. Okay. If you look at the index, you will see this one is divided up into different subjects. 
you've got the Pentateuch, Penta being from the Greek word for five, and Tuch from law. This is the five books of the law. Uh, the Torah uh, 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 are the five books of Moses. Uh, you can call them any of those you like. The law, you can call it the law. But that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. No difference. Let's see if I can get that easier. Then you've got what are written down as the historical books. And um, um, I noticed that Regina had, had, had little check marks next to a couple of them where uh, uh, they were like noted to be a little different than the NIV. You know, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, uh, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Nehemiah. Those are all books that we would find in our evangelical uh, uh, Bibles. But then, Tobit. Anybody got Tobit in there? No. Judith. Uh-uh. Esther. Ah. We've got Esther in our Bible. Yes, but it's different. The Apocrypha has certain additions to the book of Esther that are not found in the Jewish manuscripts. The Jewish book of Esther, you'll recall from our class, is a book that has no mention of God. It's a book that has no reference to praying. It's got fasting, but no praying. It's got no reference to worship. There are additions to the book of Esther which added these things which were not most likely part of the original book. And these are apocryphal works of Esther. But instead of putting them in a separate section, the, the Bible, the, the Catholic Bible here, just adds them to the Old Testament book of Esther that we're familiar with. Um, the first book of Maccabees. And those are not killer bees, they're Maccabees. Um, the second book of Maccabees. These are not, we didn't cover these in our class. And yet here they are in this Old Testament. The wisdom books. Job, we did Job, we did Psalms, we did Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, the Book of Wisdom. We didn't cover that, did we? Now, interesting, though, if you read the first three chapters of Romans, Paul's clearly thinking about the Book of Wisdom as he writes it because Paul's referencing a lot of phrases out of the Book of Wisdom. Um, Ecclesiasticus. Not to be confused with Ecclesiastes. Um, another book that is not uh, 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 found in, in most Protestant Bibles. And then we have under the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. We have Lamentations. We have Baruch. Now we read about a fellow named Baruch who was the secretary of Jeremiah. We haven't covered the book of Baruch. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. And all of the minor prophets are listed, the, the 12. So as you get a Catholic Bible, you're going to see different books than we have in our Old Testament. And it brings up the question of which Bible should we be reading? Which one should we be using? Why are they in one book and not in the other book? Are those legitimate questions? Okay. Well, before I answer them, I want to get you thoroughly confused. Okay? So I'll start confusing you. Right here. There is a, you notice I put that was the easy answer. There's a hard answer to what the Apocrypha is. Um, and if I could get this thing to flick, I would show you the hard answer. Ah, but there's more. There is what's called the New Testament Apocrypha. These are books like the Gospel of Thomas, uh, well, and then there's the Pseudepigrapha. 
The New Testament Apocrypha are books like the Gospel of Thomas, um, uh, a number of different books that carry that label Apocrypha. We're not covering them right now. We might cover those later with the New Testament. This is what uh, a lot of people are into these days to say Jesus was married or Jesus had kids or uh, Jesus uh, was something different than he's portrayed to be in the gospel. We're not covering those because you're not going to find that in any mainstream Bible at all. Christianity has never considered those as, as authentic uh, in any uh, mainstream sect of Christianity. The Pseudepigrapha um, is another collection of books. Uh, I brought... Um, these are two old volumes I've got. This is an old Apocrypha. And this is all of the Apocrypha not integrated into Scripture but just separated out so that it's an easy reference and an easy way to read it. It's also important because there are two books in the Apocrypha, actually three books in the Apocrypha, that the Catholics do not consider to be part of Scripture. And so they're not even in the Catholic Bible. So this is a complete, what would be called Old Testament Apocrypha. But when Oxford published it, they published it in two volumes. This is a volume called the Pseudepigrapha. And I've broken the word down for us here. Um, New Testament Apocrypha, yeah, yeah, yeah. Necessary theological term, we'll come back to it. New Testament Apocrypha, not canon. Yeah, here we go. We're skipping around a little bit. This is the joys of having been on spring break vacation and written this earlier than I'm delivering it. Um, pseudepigrapha comes from two Greek words, the word that we get pseudo from, which means false, right? And then grapho, what would grapho mean? Writing, yes. Or even the author comes from that, the writer. Um, the pseudepigrapha is a collection of writings that are under fake names. Um, they've never been considered as scripture by anybody, but they were very prevalent at the time of the New Testament. A lot of Jews would have read them. So you open it up, for example, and you've got in here the book of Enoch. Okay, Enoch didn't write the book of Enoch. Enoch was the, in the old, old pre-Abraham time in the Old Testament where it talks about Enoch and it says he was without mother and father and Enoch was not because the Lord took him. You remember? Um, so the Jews had a tradition that since God just took Enoch up, then sometimes Enoch would come back down. And Enoch came back down one time and he wrote a book. And, but he probably didn't. Um, these are important though because, for example, in the New Testament book of Jude, Jude quotes out of the Pseudepigrapha once and references two different passages in it. So we will, um, we will talk about the pseudepigrapha some when we get to uh, the book of Jude, but not until then. For right now, we're going to stick with the plain old apocrypha, but we do need to get this necessary theological term out of the way, so I'm backtracking. Canon. Say it. Canon. Okay, canon is a term that you need to have familiarity with. We've talked about it before, so this is a reminder. Canon means authoritative collection of Scripture. Okay. The canon, it comes from the Greek word that means a reed for measuring, and it's, it's a, a measuring device. It's, this is what Scripture should be. We can use the word Scripture instead, but canon is a good word that we need to have familiarity with. Now, let's get through that. Why is it called the Apocrypha? Who came up with that word? Apocrypha comes from two Greek words, apo, which means from or away, 
And uh, the, the word that you get the kripha from is the Greek word for hidden, like a crypt, I think, comes from the same word. Um, so apocrypha means something that's hidden away. And that's a positive and a negative term, depending on who you're talking to. If you're talking to someone who um, believes that the apocrypha belongs in Scripture, to call it the apocrypha is something that's positive. It's hidden away because a lot of people aren't wise enough to see it. Only those wise enough to see it learn from it. Okay? Then there's the negative side of the coin. I've turned the Bible backwards for that. The negative side of the, the, the term is, yeah, it's hidden because it's not real. Okay? It's not authoritative. It's not divinely inspired on the same level as the rest of Scripture. So it's hidden away. It should not be here in the Bible. And, and so the term is used by both camps, and uh, um, that's useful. What are the books of the Old Testament Apocrypha? I took them, the titles out of the Revised Standard Version, not out of the Catholic Bible. Uh, you've got the first and second book of Esdras. You've got Tobit, Judith. Uh, by the way, the first and second book of Esdras are not considered part of the Catholic Bible either. The Catholics do not consider them as authoritative. Uh, Tobit, Judith, additions to the book of Esther. Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus. Uh, you've got Baruch, the letter of Jeremiah. Prayer of Azariah, Susanna, Bell and the Dragon, Prayer of Manasseh, First Book of Maccabees, and Second Book of Maccabees. Now, that brings us to the critical question for this morning. This morning, I've really got two critical questions for us. First question we're going to answer today is, why do some believe these books belong in the Bible and others don't? And then the second question is, how are these books useful, at least from my perspective of life? We're going to answer those two questions, then we're going to have points for home, which honestly took more of my time than anything else out of this lesson. So if y'all glean some extra points from home as we're going along, you make notes and you tell me so I can add them if I ever teach this again, okay? Okay, because I would love this to be a practical day other than just filling us up with some head knowledge. Why do some believe it canonical but others don't? I can't answer that question first. I've got to answer another question first. The first question is, how did the Old Testament become canonized? Who decided that the Old Testament was going to be Scripture? And that it was going to be these, in the Hebrew count, 22 books. Because remember, they combined kings, they combined chronicles. Same as the number of letters in the Hebrew alphabet. A complete book. Who decided it was going to be these books and no more? Okay, that's the first question. Um, let's look at that question and go through it. First of all, we've got to readily admit we don't have a lot of these answers. Some of these answers, they just, they aren't there. We've got ideas, but no one sat down and wrote through the history of how the Old Testament was put together. Um, things, though. Let's look at what we know. Number one, we know the Jews had immense respect for Scripture. If you go all the way back... When God instructed Moses on how to build the tabernacle, he had the Holy of Holies, right? And in there, what went? The Ark of the Covenant. We know that from Indiana Jones, if not biblical literacy. Okay? But the Ark of the Covenant had some more stuff. We had a jar of manna. We had 
the Aaron's staff and the Ten Commandments, the law that was given to Moses. That went into the Holy of Holies. From the very beginning of Israel as a nation, there was a great devotion and respect and an understanding that the law was not something that a legislature got together and voted on. The law was something that was delivered from God. Ten Commandments of it written with His hand, His finger. Three places it's God writes in the Bible. Ten Commandments with His finger. Then there's writing on the wall in Daniel. And then Jesus writes in the sand. Of those, we get from this a very profound understanding of the Jews did that the Word of God was something very special. When the Jews would write Scripture, even into the Masoretic scholars, the Masoretes were the Jewish scholars who were copying Scripture before the advent of the Xerox machine and the press. You know, for, for the Middle Ages, they would sit and they would not only transcribe letter by letter, but at the end of each column, they would count how many letters they had transcribed and make sure they had the right number. They would then count and find the middle letter and make sure it was the proper letter. They would do that for each book, each scroll. And, and they had all, because they were transcribing the Word of God. If you go back to the first century Jewish historian Josephus, as he talks about how Scripture was taken care of, the Jews had an immense respect for Scripture because Scripture was something that came from God, not from man. And so within the realm of that, these Jews did not consider something to be Scripture unless it had been written or edited or put together by a prophet. Now, a prophet in the Jewish mind was very different than a prophet for us today. Prophets in the Jews underwent a test. Do you know what the test was? No, it was not the SAT. It was the PSAT, the prophet SAT. No, uh, they underwent a test. What was the test? Did, were, were they really accurate in what they said was going to be happening? And this was a test that was handed down by God with Moses. And if they were accurate, they were prophets. They were speaking the word of God. If they were not accurate, you stoned them. You know, that takes Sister Cleo and a bunch of people out. Uh, I mean, you, you just say, okay, you know, hey, read my palm. And, but if it doesn't come true, you're dead. And a lot of people don't claim to be palm readers anymore. Read my horoscope of what's going to happen today. But if it does not come true, then whoever wrote it dies. You know, you don't have a lot of that going around. Now, there were false prophets, but not a lot of them. There were true prophets who were frequently stoned as well because they were speaking the truth of God. But history revealed them to be true. Jeremiah was true in what Jeremiah said was going to happen to Israel. Ezekiel called it down the, right down the middle and nailed it. You look at the prophets, and the prophets uh, had a test, uh, um, and it, the canon itself, the Hebrew Scriptures, we understand from reading the rabbis and the historians uh, 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 from Christ's time and, and all in that area and even proceeding, these were put together by the prophets by men who were specially endowed with the Spirit of God to speak for God. And that's what gives them authority. And that's why the Jews recognize them as holy scriptures. And that's why we recognize them as holy scriptures. And so the canons, uh, uh, the canon, the, the Old Testament scripture is not just something that was written by prophets, but prophets called it together into a canon. 
And uh, that's what we believe. Now, some rabbis will tell us, and I was having a conversation before class about uh, uh, dispensationalism, and while I, I'm not uh, fully embracing of that as a theology myself, uh, Jewish rabbis believed that the special dispensation of the Holy Spirit to certain prophets, the age of prophets, lasted from Moses, a first prophet, till basically the time of Malachi. And that once that was over, other than the great prophet or Messiah who was to come, the time of prophecy was over. And so Scripture was closed then. There was nothing that could be added to Scripture because there was no prophet who could either A, write it, or B, say it belonged in there. And so Scripture closes with the age of the prophets closing at the time of Malachi, roughly about 400 B.C. And uh, that's where the Old Testament Scriptures came from. Um, the Old Testament, we're going to skip this or we won't make it through. The Old Testament, the Torah, Law, five books. We know that... Uh, we know that Josiah found buried in the temple, or his priests found, a copy of the law, the Torah, the five books of Moses. That would have been around 630 B.C. So that portion, if you recall, the Jews divided their scriptures into three sections. There was the law, the prophets, and the other writings. Sometimes it was just called the law and the prophets, and the other writings were included in the prophets. So, for example, you'll read Jesus talking about the law and the prophets. You'll also find in the New Testament the references to the law, the prophets, and the other writings because it was interchangeable at the time. But the law was something that by 630 B.C. was clearly put together, considered prophetic. This is where we've got the time of Isaiah. We've got these other prophets. And the same Isaiah who in Isaiah 53 is so clearly able to call out who the Messiah is going to be as far as a suffering servant. You read Isaiah 53, that's no sister Cleo. I mean, it's, it, it's just dead on description of Jesus the Messiah. That same era of prophets are who were vouching, who had that word of God, able to see 630 years into the future, are the ones who were able to say, this is what God had delivered through Moses. These are the, these are the, the law. We also know shortly thereafter... Some scholars believe that you had the prophets that were canonized, no doubt by 219 B.C., because we find written references to the prophets then as a group. But most likely by about 400 B.C. as the prophets' age was closing. The prophets were gathered together, and that's why, and that's why they were still around. Um, the writings, uh, uh, different people believe... What are we doing? We're switching? Okay. You can do that part. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Lulu. Um, the, uh, I feel like I'm giving a deposition. That's where we run into these as lawyers. Okay, I'm not like being sexy, but I've got to do this a little better. Okay. Um, you don't have to laugh at that. I could have been. Um... Okay, the uh, law, the prophets, the writings, those are the groupings of scriptures. In 90 AD, the Jews, the Jewish rabbis called together a council at Jamnia um, to, to have a discussion of what was the canon, and they verified that, that what they had already accepted was the canon. There were discussions about the book of Esther because of the lack of references to God. There were discussions about the book of Ezekiel. Uh, uh, there were a couple other books that were discussed. 
Uh, it's very interesting, though, what had happened historically to the Jews at this point that made this council so important. In 160-something B.C., I think it's like 167, but this is being taped and I could be wrong, I admit it. Um, around 160-something, uh, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes uh, decided he was going to eradicate Jews and Judaism. And so as part of his eradication war, Hitler was not the first. People have been trying to eradicate the Jews. Uh, uh, well, if you go back far enough, uh, Jacob and Esau had quite a time of it in some ways. But um, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes tried to wipe out the Jews. And as part of that, he ransacked the temple. He burned all of the Jewish scrolls, all of their holy writings. I mean, I would love to put my hands on them and see in 167 B.C., what were the holy writings? How old were they? How old the copies did they have? But they all got burned, and he also set up a, a worship in the temple to the Greek uh, pantheon of gods. Um, the Jews recaptured and, and rededicated the temple and put in new sets and new writings of their holy scriptures, uh, but then the, the Romans came through in Masada in 70 A.D. and again burned and destroyed. In fact, destroyed their genealogies because uh, at that point in time, the Jews still had extant genealogies that showed their relations all the way back. If I'm not mistaken, Paul, for example, writes in Philippians that he knows he's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's able to chart it all the way back. And they kept good genealogies at the temple, and those were burned, history tells us, in 70 A.D. So you've got in, in 90 A.D. a big concern on behalf of the Jews of trying to make sure that they have a good grasp of what their scriptures really are because they've been burned up twice in the last 250 years, and recently it was 168. Um, there's discussion over those books, but ultimately uh, the Jewish canon is authenticated as we have it. Now, as say as we have it, that's our 22 books, that's our Old Testament. Where did these books come from then? Why the Apocrypha? If they're not in the Jewish Old Testament, which they're not, and the Jews did not have them, why do we have them? Where did the issue come from? Who, who started putting them in there in the first place? Well, to understand that, we need to now talk a little bit extra about the Septuagint. Are y'all staying in with this? Am I doing okay? Okay, if I'm in tears, then uh, just sit there quietly in color. That's <laughs> what we tell our kids, you know. Um, we may have to pass out crayons with next week's lesson. Okay. Um, the diaspora, the dispersion of the Jews. You took Jews, they were in the promised land. In 722, the northern tribes are wiped out and dispersed. And then uh, culminating in 587, but even before that, the Babylonians are invading Judah, the southern area, and, and the Jews are being sent off. And the Jews that aren't being sent off are leaving of their own volition. I mean, you got prophets walking around saying, Jerusalem's going down, baby. It's going down bad, and it's going to be really bad for everybody. Do you want to stay there? I don't. I'd say, okay, well, a bunch of corrupt people, you're taking it down, I'm leaving. A lot of Jews migrated, for example, to Alexandria, Egypt, which was one of the, the nearest places. It wasn't called Alexandria at the time. It was called that after Alexander the Great. But um, Alexandria, Egypt, what we consider Alexandria, was a migration point. And in fact, a lot of the Jews never moved back. And there was a huge Jewish community in Alexandria, Egypt, uh, uh, in 
300 and 200 BC. There were Jewish communities all around the Mediterranean area that never moved back to Judah. And what happens when you live in a country, um, Greek was the common language being spoken because Alexander the Great had conquered all of these lands. What happens when you live in a country generation after generation after generation? You lose your native tongue. And so you've got Jewish people who for two or three or four or five or six or more generations have been living in a Greek-speaking area. And what do they start speaking? Greek. So Ptolemy II was one of the rulers of the, the, that division of Alexander's empire that ruled out of Alexandria, Egypt in the 200s. And he had a very intense fascination with Judaism. And so it was Ptolemy the Great, or I mean Ptolemy II, who sent to Jerusalem and directed that 70, tradition tells us, 70 Jewish scholars come to Alexandria, Egypt and translate Jewish holy writings and other Jewish writings into Greek so that the Jews who read Greek would have those scriptures available for reading. This is what became the Septuagint. When the Holy Scriptures were translated into Greek, they were still kept on scrolls. This scroll is uh, about 400 years old. This is the Hebrew scroll of Esther. Okay? And it's written on animal skin, handwritten with ink. And there were very special rules about how you would write Scripture. In fact, we can read debates among the rabbis about whether or not you were allowed to put different sections of scripture on the same scroll. Most believed you could not take a writing out of the law, the Torah, the first five books, and combine it on a scroll with something out of the prophets. You did not mix. And so you would take a scroll, and, and each scroll would have a different book on it, except, for example, the, the scroll that has the 12 um, uh, minor prophets, and, and there were some combination things like that. But by and large, each book went on a scroll. And this is the way the books were kept. Maybe it's not even right to call it a book at this point, is it? Maybe we should call it a scroll. They didn't have books and they didn't put the scriptures on books then. So what happened is the Jews would write scrolls translating their scriptures and other holy writings into Greek. We come to call this the Septuagint because Septuagint comes from the word for 70. And you'll recall we abbreviate it how? LXX, the Roman numerals. LXX for 70. And so that's the abbreviation for the Septuagint. Now, something interesting happens here. I just love the way God's hand moves in all of this. I just, I, I'm fascinated. I love history anyway. I'm fascinated by this. Christianity comes in. Okay? Now, what religious group starts Christianity? Jews. Jesus was a Jew, right? Okay. Paul, Jew. Peter, Jew. The Jews start the thing, or God uses the Jewish people as God starts Christianity. Christianity, for a long time, is really just a cult in the minds of the Jewish leaders of the Jewish faith. So the Jews have Christianity, but along comes Paul, 
And God, consistent with prophecy, takes Christianity and moves it beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. What language do the Gentiles speak? Greek. Can you be a Christian now or then with only the New Testament? No. How about if you're a New Testament Christian and the New Testament hadn't been written yet? What are your scriptures? The Old Testament. Paul says in Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and training, correcting, rebuking. What scripture is he talking about there? In the core is the Old Testament. The New Testament hasn't been put together yet. I think he's writing one of them. Okay? So the scriptures are being used by Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Well, a lot of Jews didn't speak Hebrew. How many Gentiles do you think spoke Hebrew? <laughs> Next to none. So what scriptures for the Old Testament are the new Christians going to be using? The Septuagint. See, the new Christians use the Greek version of the Old Testament. You'll find it quoted by Paul and others. Not exclusively, but a great measure of them do, such that the Jews at this point start pulling back from the Septuagint. Even though the Jews authored it and put it together for several hundred years, the Jews start seeing the Septuagint as Christian scriptures and pull back from it and start working harder on being, uh, learning their Hebrew and keeping their Hebrew up. So the Septuagint becomes Christian scriptures. Well, now the Christians did not have the hang-up about scrolls. The Christians started putting books together in what we call a codex. A codex is a book. And so somewhere, the Christians start putting together codexes. This is ironic. This is actually a Hebrew codex because the Jews moved to codexes, but not for 500 years. The Christians start putting books together in, into a, 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 a book like this. And so somewhere along the lines, these Septuagint Christians take the scrolls and put them together into a book, which we call the Septuagint, and included in that book are not just the Hebrew scriptures, but other holy writings of the Jews. This is what we call the Apocrypha. And so the Apocrypha is put together by early members, most likely, of the church who are using Greek translations without a full knowledge of what the Hebrew Scriptures really were. And, and so the book gets put together, and it's got uh, a number of different writings, some of which were never intended and never accepted by the Jews as part of Scripture. Does that kind of make sense? Okay, then let's keep going, if it makes sense. Um, scrolls used by Jews, Christians, codex books, some with extra books. Jews quit using the Septuagint. We have codexes, not scrolls. Now, history unfolds. The early church fathers, that's a term used for people who, who were the bishops, the uh, deacons, the leaders, the pastors in the early church, 100, 200 A.D., Okay. You've got the apostles, and then after the apostles died out, you have the second generation, and those start to be the apostolic fathers. Okay? You've got the early church fathers. 
And if you look at Origen, Melito of Sardis, these were fellows that were good Hebrew scholars. Melito of Sardis is about 170 A.D. These are good Hebrew scholars who know the Hebrew Scriptures, who are able to read the Hebrew Scriptures, who produce lists of what should be considered Scripture for Old Testament purposes, and they listed it out. These folks did not include the Apocrypha because Hebrew scholars, they knew the Apocrypha was not part of the Hebrew Scriptures. Then there were some other early fathers who were not familiar with Hebrew and not Hebrew students. And these were ones that just used the Septuagint. And while they don't produce specific lists of scriptures, you will read in their writings that they will quote out of the Septuagint just as readily as they will quote out of what we consider the Old Testament. And so logic tells us that most likely these folks believe that the apocryphal books were part of scripture because they didn't understand the difference. As we move forward into the 300s, um, Augustine, I said Augustine in early part of his life believed that the uh, 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 Apocrypha, Augustine was a Greek student, he believed the Apocrypha was part of the Greek. Um, the Greek fathers uh, 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 were not of the same mindset um, uh, as they continued to study. They, they found that these Hebrew scripts were, were not in the original Greek. We get to Jerome. Jerome's very important because it was Jerome who translated the Bible into Latin for the church, for the Catholic church. Jerome was a Greek student, part, I, he's just phenomenal. He's, he's like one of the masters of Greek, okay? The guy was a Greek student out the wazoo. He came to Hebrew later in life, but he viewed it important before God that he learned Hebrew and he became very proficient as a Hebrew scholar. So when Jerome was ordered by the Catholic Church to translate Scripture into Latin, because Latin was becoming the predominant language, Greek was dying out, the Romans were ruling, what he did is um, went back and translated from the Hebrew and said, the Apocrypha, eh, that's not part of the Hebrew Scriptures, so he doesn't include it. It's not included by him. And two books ultimately make it into the Catholic Bible, translated by Jerome, but only because some bishops leaned on him, and Jerome put a little insert in there. It said, these don't belong in the Hebrew Old Testament. Over the next thousand years, as the Middle Ages unfolded, some Catholic scholars would insert more of the Septuagint and translate it into the Bible. You get to Martin Luther, and by Martin Luther and the Reformation movement, You've got Martin Luther arguing critically against anything that the Catholic Church believes that Martin Luther thinks is wrong. Some of the things Martin Luther argued against were saying mass for the dead. Because once they're dead, Martin Luther's view is you can't do anything for them. Martin Luther argued against purgatory. Well, both purgatory and the mass for the dead find scriptural support in parts of the Apocrypha. And so Martin Luther said, well, yeah, but that's the Apocrypha. It doesn't belong in the Bible anyway. And when Martin Luther translated the Bible into German, he took all of the apocryphal works that some considered scriptures and he set them off to the side and said, with a note, this is apocryphal. This is, does not belong in, in scripture. Um, he did that with all except first and second Ezra's. Uh, those, he said, um, <laughs> this is good. 
bah, 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 Martin Luther. Okay, this is worth it. Let me find it. Yeah. They contain absolutely nothing which one could not much more easily find in Aesop or even in more trivial books. So he wasn't even going to translate those. He just soon translated Aesop's fables. Now, in fairness, this was also the guy who called the Epistle of James, which is in our New Testament, a book of straw, because uh, he was not too fond of James either, and he spoke his mind rather clearly. Um, but Luther did that. If we fast forward here, because we're running out of time, and I'm not getting to a lot of that I wanted to. I'm sorry I got bogged down. Um, uh, give me five minutes to finish this up. Uh, let's talk about our English versions for a minute. In 1535, a fellow named Miles Coverdale translated the Bible into English for the first time. And this English version of the Bible by Miles Coverdale had the Apocrypha, but he labeled it as apocryphal and not part of the Bible. Two years later, another translation comes out, same thing. Uh, that's the, the, the Thomas Matthew uh, translation of the Bible. If you go forward now to the late 1500s into the early 1600s, you get the most significant English translation next to the King James, and that's called the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible is the Bible that Shakespeare used. It's the Bible that Bunyan used. It's the Bible that the pilgrims brought over. The Geneva Bible was the first Bible in English to put into verses the Bible and, and put the verses in there. Um, the Geneva Bible carved the Apocrypha out and was very careful with a section saying, this is apocryphal, here's an introduction explaining why it's useful for maybe learning things, but it's not really scripture on the par of the other scriptures. King James in 1611 is translated. King James doesn't give a lengthy introduction, but just labels the Apocrypha as apocryphal. The Catholic Church is rebelling against all of the rebellion, and so calls in the 1500s a Council of Trent where the Catholic Church declares all of the Apocrypha is scriptural except for three books, the Prayer of Manasseh, First and Second Ezra. And if you don't believe it, then you get kicked out of the Catholic Church. Now, the Catholic Church had problems with that because a lot of good, studious Catholic scholars don't believe the Apocrypha to be part of Scripture and didn't and haven't historically. But they don't make a big deal out of it because who wants to get kicked out? Um, but they, the church is kind of loosey on that stuff anyway in my mind because they know a lot of these scholars feel that way and they don't do much about it. Um, as you fast forward into scripture, how do the other churches land on this? I've put it in the materials for you to read. The most interesting one being the Church of England, which is kind of a middle of the road between a Reformation church and a, um, a Catholic church. The Church of England historically has said that the... Um, Apocrypha is useful for edification, but don't go reading it for doctrine because it's not perfect for doctrinal purposes. Uh, interestingly enough, when King Edward VII was being sworn in in the 1900s, like 1901 or whatever, uh, historically before he signs his oath of confirmation as, as king, he's supposed to kiss the Bible. Uh, he, the Bible they had for him to kiss was put out by the Bible Society of uh, uh, Britain, British Bible Society, which had about 50 years earlier started taking out the Apocrypha. And so he's been down to kiss a Bible that didn't have the Apocrypha in it. And they had to say, time out, uh, under law, you're supposed to kiss one with the Apocrypha. So they had to go find another book for the coronation. They had to bring it in for him to kiss that instead. Um, so the Apocrypha has had some wonderful history. Let me close by telling you this. There are some uses of the Apocrypha that we need to be aware of. We'll read in the New Testament about Pharisees and Sadducees, but we will not read where they came from unless we read the Apocrypha. 
The Apocrypha will help us understand. The Apocrypha has history that's important for us from the closing of the Old Testament Malachi to the beginning of Jesus and, and the time of Christ. These are books that were written in that time period from about 200 B.C. till about even 100 A.D. So during that time period these books are written. They have good historical information for us. They also have some good devotional thoughts. Um, who has ever read C.S. Lewis? Well, he's not part of Scripture. Why would you read him? Useful. Good devotional thoughts. Same thing with this. Um, good devotional thoughts. There's a wonderful wedding story. Um, there's some bizarre stuff in there uh, 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 that we'll talk about that, that has caused people like Luther to say this is Aesop's fables. Um, uh, we'll talk some about that next week. What do we have to take home from today? Let's see if I can uh, skip through all the stuff I didn't give you. And this, has got, this is all in the outline. There's more stuff than I told you today, so you can read your outline. Points for home. Number one, there is more to the Apocrypha than meets the eye. Number two, Scripture is not an afterthought. This is not something we stumbled into. This is something that a lot of men have fought and died for and given their lives for and studied. God has ensured that we've got this. Uh, the Old Testament has great integrity from the Hebrew scholars and the prophets of God. This was not put together by a bunch of men. Uh, uh, this was Old Testament put together by prophets of God lives on the line. Um, uh, I would urge us to realize that we should study our beliefs. And that's the third thing I've got here. Um, Y'all, this is a difficult problem to address in a class like this because I want to send you home with something meaty but something also that, that changes your heart. I don't know how to change your heart with this other than to say, I promise you if you'll come back next week, as we look at some of the stories, I will take them and show you how the New Testament uses them. Because Jesus makes some of his points by contrasting teaching of the Apocrypha. Some of it by using teaching of the Apocrypha. Paul does the same thing. And there are some lessons we can glean by using the Apocrypha. If you've got a Catholic Bible, bring it next week. If you've got just an Apocrypha, bring it next week. We'll go through it and we'll show you ways that it helps us understand the New Testament. Would you pray with me? Lord, it's a struggle for me to stand up here and teach this stuff in a Sunday school setting. And it is my hope that your spirit will somehow take this out of just being a history class uh, or a theology class and make it something real. Lord, create a desire within us to hear your voice. Create a desire in us to read the scripture, to understand it for how you have written it and for what you want it to say. Purify, Lord, our desires to know and understand you better. Don't ever let us, Lord, be satisfied with how we have constructed a vision of you. May we always seek who you are and let that change our vision of you. Lord, help us to all address Scripture not with fear, not with unbelief, but with a recognition that you who have made our minds have given us good, solid, logical, rational food for us to eat and grow from. May we never be afraid of what Scripture says. May we never be afraid to examine Scripture. Bless us, bring us back together, Lord. In Jesus I pray, amen.